Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, pregnancy-focused chiropractor, Dr. Elliot Berlin. My guest today is a perinatal psychologist, board chair of Postpartum Support International, and host of the Mom and Mind podcast. She's a mom of two, and she's joining us today to share her experiences of both having and treating perinatal mood disorders. Dr. Kat Kayani, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I love that you're shining a light on perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Uh, it's so important. I feel like incredibly under-discussed and not enough people doing what you do. And also, my wife is deeply seated in that environment. It um, sure is. You know, I love that there are great people working on it. And let's broaden the conversation. But let's start with the beginning. Where are you from originally? Oh, um, born in Oregon, the United States. However, I am first generation on my dad's side. My dad immigrated from Iran when he was around 20. And my mom, who's a Midwestern white lady, and had my brother and then me. Ah, you're the youngest. I am, yeah, by four hmm. years. Oh my gosh, I'm the youngest by four years as well. Oh, nice, nice. It it's wasn't like, hard at all, I'm sure. It's like looking in the mirror. <laughs> yeah, we are twins. <laughs> uh, okay, so as we mentioned, your work is perinatal psychology, and you also have a podcast. How did you get into all that work? So a long, long story short, I've always known that I wanted to be a psychologist from age 12, pretty much. So fast forward, I graduated and got Whoa, into- that's a huge fast forward. I mean, <laughs> who at age 12, not, not even everybody knows that there is a psychologist at age 12. Were you right. seeing a psychologist? No, I became a peer support counselor at, at my junior high. There was an opportunity to do peer counseling. And so, you know, kids who were having a hard time would need to like step out and just talk to a friend. And also bonus, I got out of class sometimes, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it a was like a win-win. Yes. But it was such a cool feeling to be able to help people and to just know that I could support somebody in that way. And yeah, so it just like hit me at that time and apparently stayed. So. Wow, that's really cool. That's, I also feel sometimes life has these little signs that pop up like in the video games, go this way, and then <laughs> right. you follow it because yes. it's a big green arrow. Yes. And also, I mean, I've only known you for 10 minutes, but <laughs> you are very easy to talk to. Well, thank you. I guess it started way back then. I could see how people would feel comfortable opening up. So at that point, I assume you didn't know perinatal. Gosh, no. I had these other weird feeling, well, weird, I guess, for a young kid is like, how can I make a difference in the world as one person? So anyhow, now I'll fast forward um, to being a psychologist. I started working in major hospital system, but I was still a generalist and something still didn't feel like fully like I was doing what I was supposed to do yet and then after the birth of my daughter developed postpartum depression, anxiety, and OCD, and my whole world blew apart and took about a year for me to figure out what was going on. So even though as a psychologist, I was versed in mental health or so I thought, I didn't know about this and it wasn't in any training or really anywhere other than this like mention of something that people can develop. So after I figured out what was going on, I was really just sort of floored uh, that I had never really had any training in it. 
And also it lit a fire in me to make sure that nobody felt this way ever again. And then there you go. There's my, how do I help as many people as possible? Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. What a powerful, again, giant arrow saying, go this way, go this way. Mm -hmm. I want to get, I have so many questions about that and want to get into the details of it. But before we get to postpartum, how was pregnancy for you? Yeah, I had a relatively easy pregnancy um, planned, didn't take too, too long to get pregnant, thankfully. And it was fine. I didn't have much in morning sickness, a little bit, it faded after some time. It started to become a little bit more difficult in the later parts of pregnancy where I developed a really painful carpal tunnel and I had so much swelling in my body that that pain was nearly unbearable and the dig were veins thing that oh, happens in the synovitis, mommy mm-hmm. yes exactly those were very painful but still everything was fairly easy and actually easier than when i wasn't pregnant because i finally had a break from the massive hormonal changes and difficulties that I experienced with premenstrual and menstrual cycle that was really difficult for all of my life. So I didn't have that anymore. I didn't have the hormonal ups and downs. And so it was this like wonderful relief. Wow. So in some ways more comfortable pregnant than not pregnant. Yes. Okay. During your pregnancy, did you have any anxiety? Looking back on it now, I know that towards the end, I started to develop some but it was still relatively mild and no more difficult to manage than anxiety I had felt at any other point in my life. And just side note, that is a risk factor. Having anxiety or depression already prior to pregnancy and postpartum is a risk factor for developing it during and after. And that was true for me. I had depression and anxiety earlier on in life, but it was still relatively mild. Had you done things to care for it earlier on in life? Yeah, therapy. I had tried medication at some point earlier on, like in teen years. I've had, <laughs> there's another contributing factor, which is I've had three concussions, one of which was at age 15, and they were all like sports related. So that kind of, you know, messes with your brain a bit. Literally. I mean, yeah, they always told me you got to do sports. It's so healthy for you. And I'm like, no, you got to watch TV. You never get a concussion. (laughs) Solid advice. Yeah. Pay attention, kids. Right, right, right. So I had done a couple of things to help manage anxiety and depression, and it was managed at that point. Okay. And did you have any specific plan for birth? Yeah, I was deep, deep living in San Francisco. So very well surrounded by a lot of holistic practitioners. And so that was the goal is to have an unmedicated birth. I had a doula that I'd picked quite early on and she helped with a lot of meditative visualizations and things like that. I put together a vision board, you know, what I wanted to be looking at during birth. What kind of things on the vision board? Oh, like a flower, an open flower, like pictures of women being sort of strong, not meaning like physically weight lifter strong, but just showing strength. Those kinds of visualizations that reminded me of my strength and my capacity. Amazing. And how did your labor start? 
Well, it was a Friday night and I was craving donuts and <laughs> I had my first contraction at that point, um, fairly late at night. And I had slowly inched towards birth from that point. So Saturday I was in sort of like a pre-labor state. I decided that I was going to make cookies for all of the nursing staff as a way to stay on my feet and stay active. So I made cookies all day Saturday. Wow, so far I'm loving birth, donuts and cookies. (laughs) This is my speed. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) So anyways, that was part of the plan is to try and figure out something to do to stay on my feet. And I was in touch with my doula the whole time. And it was just like a very slow progression. And then Sunday morning, finally, we went to the hospital. It was a hospital birth. And it was still a very slow process. And my daughter didn't come out until Monday, about 1130. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And it was three hours of pushing. Pushing? Wow. Yeah. So I had back labor and that is like the most pain I had ever experienced up until that point for an extended period of time. And you still didn't medicate? Correct. Wow. Yeah. The doula was there with me and she was helping. We tried showers. We tried baths. We tried the bouncy balls and pressure points and all of that stuff. And it wasn't progressing very quickly. So the pain was very intense for a long time. And I felt stubbornly determined to continue in that fashion. And they let me, which is not always the case in hospital births. Mm -hmm. True. Eventually the baby came out. Yes, (laughs) she did. She sure did. She came out and she had just a tiny aspirated a little bit of meconium, but that was enough to set off my anxiety because what I saw, she had coughed up a little bit of stuff that was like green after Mm -hmm. she was all wrapped up and everything. And in that moment, like my vigilance became so hyper-focused on watching her all of the time. And that lasted four months. Oh, wow. So like, no calm. Not really. Wow. Okay. I want to find out because I think what happens next is what you're saying is a very difficult postpartum transition for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take a little break and dig into that one. We'll That's be good. right back. <laughs> hey, everyone. It's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally. Omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new Omega-3 soft gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, It has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back. We're talking to Dr. Kat Kayeni. Okay, so long, unmedicated labor, tense. Pain, and then a little bit of meconium that set off your anxiety. What were you expecting postpartum to be like, if anything? And then how did your actual postpartum turn out? 
Yeah, well, unfortunately, I had subscribed to the idea that this baby comes, you have all this intuition that just gets automatically downloaded from the universe or wherever it comes from, and you know everything that your baby is going to need, and you're happy and fulfilled, and you feel great, and you're so in love, and blah, 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 you know, all this stuff. What I know now is that that is not always the case, and it wasn't the case for me. And although I felt intense love for her, you know, just this really deep care. Um, my love for her was through the filter of anxiety first. So mm. I felt anxiety in every act of love for her. Okay. So can you give some specific examples of that? Mm -hmm. Obviously nobody wants anything to happen to their baby. But the intensity that I experienced, you know, the anxiety, not wanting anything bad to happen to her turned into, as an example, she was co-sleeping next to me. So literally arms reach. And I had the monitor on next to her was the receiver and next to my ear was the speaker. So even though she was literally was right, right next there. to me. Mm -hmm, I was so worried that I wouldn't hear her if something happened or if she didn't needed me or that she would stop breathing, that I needed to have it on as loud as I could tolerate next to my ear. Wow. Mm -hmm. And did you realize in the moment that that is atypical, either okay. for you or for postpartum? No. No. So I didn't have really any other examples of postpartum around me. I was, I think, one of the first of my friends, or at least close by, that uh, had babies and weren't really talking about this stuff. So I knew that I was worried about her, but it didn't register as anxiety. It just felt like motherhood is just this hard, and I have to make sure that nothing bad happens to her. So... You know, it's hard because now I know, of course, I was incredibly anxious. But at the time, it just felt like I was in the storm of it. Did you talk about it with anybody? Nope. Nobody. No. So this is the other super messed up part about this idealized version of motherhood is that you're supposed to love this and you're supposed to be fulfilled and, you know, all of these other lovely things. And for some people, that's true. And while I felt some of those things, I also felt like I was supposed to know what I was doing and that all of this was supposed to come naturally. So saying anything to anybody about, oh, you know, being super anxious, although it didn't register as anxiety for me. So I couldn't articulate to anybody that I feel anxious. Anything that would have, that it felt like at the time, this is anxiety and depression talking, Anything that would have come out of my mouth at the time would have felt like I'm not doing a good job. I'm not being a good mom. I don't know what I'm doing. And any number of other things that inherently are shameful, you know? So why would I want to tell anybody this when I already feel ashamed enough? Ouch. Mm-hmm. Super um, messed up. And you're practicing psychologist at this point. Oh yeah. So at some point in this process, I knew that something wasn't right, but I also knew that I didn't want to know that because as a psychologist, I'm supposed to know 
what's going on. I'm not supposed to be dealing with mental health stuff. You know, <laughs> that was what I told myself, which, you know, obviously isn't true. People are people. So I did a really good job of hiding it from other people, which also meant kind of not being honest with myself, unfortunately. And it sounds like it went on for a long time. About a year. What changed at a year? Well, it got much worse. What I mean by it got a lot worse, and I just want to be sensitive to your listeners and kind of give a little sensitivity heads up warning. I'm not going to share specifics about what my intrusive thoughts were at this time, but I would like for people to know that what I am about to share might be hard for some people to hear, or they might not have even ever heard that this happens. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. So an intrusive thought, I'll just say, is a thought that kind of pops into your head all of a sudden. It could come out of nowhere, or it could be related to something that is happening around you or in front of you. Typically, the thought is an unwanted thought. It can feel scary, and it can feel overwhelming. So the type of intrusive thoughts that I began to have were of a sexual nature, that somehow I would accidentally do something to sexually harm my daughter. And this made me feel absolutely bonkers because I knew that I would never want to do anything to harm my daughter. As a matter of fact, I was so scared of these thoughts that I started to do avoidance type behaviors. So I would have a hard time changing her diaper, so I'd do it very quickly. You know, after some time, it started to go into, you know, worry that my husband would do something. And I know that he wouldn't. Like, I know him very well. That's not anything he would do. But the anxiety was such that, and this is OCD at this point, my anxiety, the obsessive thought was that I would do something to hurt her on accident, not that I wanted to. And the compulsive part of it was the avoidance behavior. So I would try and avoid changing her diaper, or I would have to do that very quickly, or I would look away while doing that. And the worst that I can remember, my husband and I would take turns doing bath time. So it was his turn to do bath time, and I was so incredibly worried that something was going to happen to her or that somehow he would do something to her. Again, like one part of my brain knows that that would never happen, but the anxious part of my brain was so wrapped up in worry about it that I was pacing back and forth in front of the bathroom door, putting my ear up to the door, like making sure I could hear her and she was okay and I could hear them talking. And then I would just like go knock on the door like, hey, is everything okay? Do you need any help in here? Like pretending like I was just trying to be nice and helpful. But it was really because I needed to know that she was safe because in my brain, my brain was just playing these horrible tricks on me, making me think that something bad was going to happen. And then I totally just lost it. I ended up crying in the kitchen, in the corner, like really, really, really felt the lowest I had felt. And so I tried to be more honest with myself. And as a therapist, again, I was actively working at this time, hiding this from everybody. I would give this depression screen, which is called a PHQ-9, and it lists all the symptoms of depression. And I decided to give it to myself and be as honest as possible. And to see the sort of score, the screening score to be in the moderately severe range was me coming to terms with what was really going on. Wow. 
Mm -hmm. So you were your first postnatal client. <laughs> For sure. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. What did you do for help? Well, I went back to a therapist who unfortunately wasn't trained. And when I shared with her that I thought I was depressed, she told me that I wasn't. And I just, it's such a missed opportunity. Um, didn't ask what was going on for me that made me think that that was the case. And so I shut down. I shut down and I decided to go other routes. I went to a naturopathic doctor. I went to an energy healer. I, you know, was like buying crystals and like whatever I could think of that I felt like could help me. I was trying to ground myself in other types of healing. Were you talking still to nobody? Were you talking to your husband? At that point, I know I didn't explicitly state stuff to him. And I want it to be clear that it's not because he wouldn't be able to hear it or handle it. It's just part of my own like trauma that it was hard for me to talk about stuff. So no, you know, it would come out in little bits and pieces here and there where I would share stuff. But that was me really kind of testing the waters with people. How did you eventually find help, effective help? Well, a lot of the things that I was doing to try and help myself was part of what was helpful. But I also got some books and started learning and reading and taking courses so that I could learn about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And being able to hear and see my experience reflected back to me from people who didn't know me at all was one of the most powerful experiences for me. To be able to see, oh, what I'm feeling is written in this book. What I'm feeling is what these people are talking about. And that really allowed me to come to terms with what was happening, have context for what was happening, and cut myself some slack, like bring in some compassion to this and find meaning in what I had been going through. And then eventually at some point I got back into therapy and, you know, that helped for sure. So it's so powerful to be reading and, you know, the, I guess, validation, the... Yeah, exactly. Realization that this happens and it's not you. Right. It's so powerful. It's so simple too. All right. I want to take another little break and when we come back find out also about your second birth and then a little bit more about what you've learned through your personal journey and the work that you're doing and you know give people at home some tips on you know how to identify maybe what's typical versus atypical and what are some things you can do to get help if you're concerned That's we'll be good. right back Welcome back to the podcast. We're talking to Dr. Kat Kayani. And okay, you had a very, very powerful a personal story. And it's just so crazy that you were from age 12 listening to and helping other people and eventually really had to listen to and help yourself. And now I've learned a lot from that and are helping others, which is amazing. I want to get a little deeper into the work that you do, but you also have another baby. I did. How was that pregnancy and birth 
It was very different. So by the time I had my son, so three years later, almost the same month, three years later, um, I had done a lot of work and try and understand what was going on for me. So I had a lot of stuff in place to protect and support my mental wellness. Along the way, I got my same doula for birth and pregnancy again was similar. It was fine, except that I had a really, really horrible pelvic shearing. The, during pregnancy or during the birth? During pregnancy. Oh, well. Yeah. At the so, pubic bone? Yeah. It was a horrible pain. So I went to a perinatal chiropractor who helped a lot and really tried to get me in the best kind of physical shape position as possible to help with birth. How'd that go? So she helped a lot. The chiropractor helped a lot. Um, this birth with my son was very different than the one with my daughter. It came on very quickly and all of a sudden, it was like 1030 at night, water broke, labor started so fast and the contractions were so intense that I was like physically shaking every time one would come through because it almost felt like lightning was ripping through my body the whole time, um, wow. it, which was very different from my daughter. Was it a lot faster? A lot faster. A lot faster. <laughs> we got to the hospital. I had to have my husband stop the car every time I was having a contraction because I couldn't deal with like the car moving. I got to the hospital. He had to go park the car. And I must have had so much fluid because every time I had a contraction, more fluid would come out. Oh, wow. So this happened all the way to the labor room. And I was like, oh, and he's going to be able to find me because I just left a trail. <laughs> it's just like all, all behind me. But yeah, it was really, really intense. And my plan was the same, to have an unmedicated birth and with no interventions. But because the contractions were so intense, and I went into this labor tired, which mm, was a big a factor big too. too yeah. It is. I was like, nope, I'll take that epidural. And luckily, I had enough time to have an epidural. So let's see. Water broke at 10.30. I had him at 4.30. Oh, wow. Well. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah. As a birth worker, you sometimes see those labors that are a lot faster, almost look like concentrated orange juice, like all of the intensity of <laughs> yeah. the full labor is just happening over a short period of time. That's exactly right. There's a train barreling through you. Mm -hmm. um, how was postpartum? Much better. I, I sort of jokingly if you want to call it that, call it like my postpartum light, because I still had anxiety and depression, but it was much easier to manage. I knew what was happening. I knew how to get help. And I knew for me, because I'm so sensitive to sleep loss, that protecting my sleep was the number one thing. And like, this is your first tip, <laughs> anyone who's listening, protect your sleep at all costs, because it really is the first medicine. Yeah, I think the opposite also, meaning without it, it's like really destructive. Things Absolutely. start to fall apart quickly. Yep. Okay, well, since you brought up some tips, <laughs> um, you know, you as a professional didn't realize what was going on. How does somebody who has a baby and comes home, and because there are, there's so much transitioning happening at the same time, physical, mm -hmm. emotional, relationship-wise, it's stressful. Transitions are stressful. And this one's not only no exception, but maybe even more than typical transitions. So how does somebody start to recognize, okay, this is more than the typical stress that somebody would feel, the, the blues that somebody would feel? Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the signs? Sure. 
Um, and this is super important. So first of all, about up to about 80% or so people experience baby blues. It is very typical. It feels like, you know, some ups and downs, you might be tearful, but for the most part, you can still kind of maintain your sense of self and feel like yourself aside from, you know, the, the tearfulness or some relatively mild ups and downs in mood. But if that is either one lasting longer than two weeks, or if in those first couple of weeks, it's more intense, meaning like it's impacting your ability to do daily functioning things. You know, we all know it's already hard to sleep, but like if you're given the opportunity to sleep and you can't, that's like a sign or a tip. A bit, bit of a flag. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. It is a bit of a flag. Or if there are other things like your appetite changes in a big way, uh, either you don't have one or you have a bigger appetite than normal. And again, this is like a little hard to judge because if you're somebody who is able to or willing and wanting to nurse, your appetite might have changed anyways. So, right. you know, it, it can be a little bit hard to distinguish, but the real thing we're looking for is intensity of symptoms and duration. If it's longer than two weeks or if it's feeling much more intense than like a mild mood shift or like a mild PMS would, then that would be like a first tip that something is going on. And are there things that maybe a partner might recognize? Sure. Again, like tearfulness is fairly common. I call like between three and six days, you know, after birth, I call it the flood because, you know, you're leaking from everywhere. You might be tearful. If you're nursing, your milk is coming in, you're still, you know, bleeding and your body is releasing sweat. So that period of time is one of the more vulnerable times to notice if like how intense that shift, that hormonal shift is for somebody. And there's quite a range of symptoms and intensity of symptoms. So for a partner, if they are noticing like crying a lot, having a down mood, low mood, feeling like really low energy is one. Again, we're tired, so you're gonna have low energy, but this is kind of like dragging energy, which we associate a little bit more with a depressed mood. Yeah, and that's something that a partner might just see out of character for their partner? Yes, yeah, okay. so right, it would be out of character, thank you. So it can also look like somebody who can't sit down like they're kind of up and doing stuff and again given the opportunity to rest are not really able to like fidgety maybe even feeling agitated or irritable and there can be quite a range there as well but again to your point it would be out of character you mentioned earlier that having anxiety before pregnancy or before birth is sort of a risk factor mm -hmm. are there other risk factors that one might say, hey, I should keep an eye on myself because I have these. Mm -hmm. Yes. So any type of personal uh, mental health challenge that you've had is a risk factor. But also if you have a family history of any kind of mental health disorder, whether it diagnosed or not, that genetics do play a part here. Another one is, as I alluded to before, is if you have a sensitivity to hormonal change already. So if you have difficulty around PMS or menstrual changes, you have a higher likelihood of being sensitive to the hormonal changes that are happening during pregnancy and postpartum. 
And there are other sociological factors, psychosocial factors. So those are the bigger categories of risk factors we're looking for. What can be difficult to know is if your family has a history of mental health challenges or difficulties, specifically if they are related to postpartum, because, you know, it's only very recently we're talking about mental health in terms of knowing what we're dealing with. There are generations of people who might have been depressed or anxious or been dealing with any number of mental health conditions and not known that that's what they were dealing with. So if you're digging around and trying to find out what their experiences were like, they might not be able to say, yes, I had depression. It could be something more like, oh yeah, after so-and-so was born, I cried for three months or you know something like that. So if people are wanting to understand their family history a bit more, sometimes the clinical terms aren't really that useful. That makes sense. When either a person or, or somebody around them starts to see some of the signs and gets concerned, what would you say the next step should be? How do you react I, to that? Yeah, absolutely. I first go to the person who you're concerned about and ask them how they are doing, ask them how they're really doing. Sometimes like, for instance, in my case, it was hard to be honest with people about how I was really doing, you know, so people could come back with the first answer is like, I'm fine, I'm doing fine. But you can also gently tell them what you're noticing that you're seeing that they don't seem to be themselves or acting like themselves, or that you're concerned about them sharing concern in a loving way is really, really powerful to be able to sit with somebody and tell them that you're concerned and then also listen. Listening is really, really crucial. So if you're going to ask somebody how they're really doing, let them talk, let them say what their experience is. Why it's so important is because oftentimes people are talked out of how they feel. So, oh, you'll be fine or, oh, you're just tired or, oh, it'll be okay, you know, in a week. So the person who might be on the verge of talking about something could feel shut down. So listening, talking, listening, and then looking into resources for the person you're concerned about. I don't know who came up with this, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps business, but this is not the time for that at all. The person who's suffering can't also be the person who's entirely responsible for getting themselves out of it although it happens a lot that they do, it is super powerful to have somebody that can go and look and find the resources and offer them gently to the person who's suffering or having difficulty. It doesn't always have to be mental health. It can be, you know, would you like me to hold the baby so you can sleep? Or I'm bringing food over and like becoming the village, so to speak, for the person who's suffering. Yeah. And just stepping in and helping without making the person who's suffering figure out how to tell you to help them. Right. Just offer something. Just mm -hmm. do it. Yep. Okay. This has been an incredibly informative and helpful conversation for me, even just as a practitioner, you know, working with people in this space. Great. And I'm Thanks. sure for people listening, you have a podcast. I do. Tell me about why you started a podcast and what you talk about on the podcast. Yes. The Mom in Mind podcast in June will be seven years old. Oh, wow. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. 
I really, as a practitioner and clinician, I got so much information out of going to conferences and trainings and learning about all of these things. And I realized one day that this is great. We can all come to these trainings and it's awesome and we need this. But what about the person who's sitting at home? How do they get this information? And that's kind of where it came from is really wanting to create a space and a platform for people to hear what it's like to experience a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder, what experts know about these conditions. And so that's what the podcast is. The Mom in Mind podcast is my podcast. And it is a collection of uh, personal stories, people talking through their experiences, what happened to them and how they got help or got better. And also expert interviews, people talking specifically about what is postpartum anxiety or what are intrusive thoughts and you know ways that people can cope and heal from them. So the podcast comes out weekly. And what I love about it is that, and you know this about podcasts too, of course, is that it's a resource that people can listen to when they have time or when they have space or when they want to or need to and at their own pace. So I find it to be really a powerful way for people to learn and re like reflect on their own experience while they're hearing somebody else's lived experience and being able to have that moment where they can say like, oh yeah, that's how I feel. That's what happened to me. And hopefully be that lifeline to getting the support that they need. I have no doubt. Dr. Kat, thank you again for joining me. Where can we find you online? Yes, um, you can go to momandmind.com or my practice, wellmindperinatal.com. Both of those will take you to my podcast and the courses that I offer and also on Instagram at momandmind. Perfect. To our listeners, if you'd like to find more information about pregnancy and parenting, just like this, visit informedpregnancy.com.